Thanks for tuning in to the Replatform podcast sponsored by Ampliance and Clavio. Today it's myself, James Gerd. Uh, my co-host Paul Rogers is off on an exciting platform launch. Uh, before I introduce our guest, let's uh, set up what the episode is about and also welcome to everyone who's tuning back in. If it's your first episode, we hope you enjoy it. We'd love you to subscribe, get episode alerts every week and do please give us a like on YouTube, Spotify or Apple. So our topic today is growing the D2C channel for Beerhawk and Perfect Draft. So interesting brands, product that's close to my heart as an avid beer uh, and ale drinker. So I'm really, really looking forward to this. Uh, I'm delighted today to welcome to the podcast Alex Nelson, who's the MD at Beerhawk. Uh, welcome, Alex. Hi, thank you for hosting me, James. It's great to be on the podcast. Uh, I, I'm really looking forward to this. Um, I already, I've already been checking out the website to see which beers will be my absolute favourites to order this week. So that's that's the weekend drinking plan. Um, before we start asking you lots of exciting questions, can you give? Because some people will, will know about Beerhawk, others won't. So can you give people a flavour of what the brand is, what you're trying to do and what your role is there? Perfect. Yeah. So Beerhawk is a leading beer online retailer in the UK. Uh, the business has been around for 10 years. It started uh, focusing on an online bottle shop for hard to find craft beers. And over time, it's evolved. And especially in the last few years, our perfect draft products lines have really taken off. So Perfect Draft is a countertop draft beer machine um, that consumers can have in their home, in their kitchen, in their garden shed. Um, and it allows you to choose from about 40 mini six liter kegs. Um, so the the beer machine, you just plug it in. It's like a, it has a, a cooling device. So it's all kind of um, self-contained. And you don't need to use CO2 cartridges or anything like that. Um, so it's basically being able to have that great pub quality draft beer in the comfort of your home. So that's really become a huge growth area for us. And um, a lot of the focus for me, especially over the last couple couple of years. Yeah, it's, it's a really cool product. I could see that being wonderful in summer in like outdoor bar areas in people's gardens. Very, very cool. Or in, in the beer sheds that a few friends of mine have created. Exactly. We have people who are even like hooking it up in their caravans. And once you have one, you have to have, bring it with you everywhere you go, basically. <laughs> oh, yeah. Music festivals where you've got a caravan, where you've got an electrical point. That's oh, that's a, that's basically like glamorous music festival. Um, <laughs> so a question for you about your background. Like how? What is your background and how did you end up at, at Beer Hall then? That is a great Great question. Um, so I've spent kind of my whole career at the intersection of consumer businesses and technology. I started as a consultant in the retail space. Uh, at one point, launched my own D2C e-commerce startup in the US. Um, spent a couple years at Google as a product manager. And after that was when I um, kind of stumbled upon this exciting venture team called ZX Ventures with an AB InBev, where they were building e-commerce businesses around the world, um, selling beer on the internet, trying to figure out how to do that. And it seemed like a really exciting thing. I loved e-commerce. I loved startups. And it was had this global opportunity. Um, so I, yeah, I started there in 2015 and have been able to um, run a couple different businesses that they've acquired. So I came to the UK at the end of 2019, just before COVID, um, to lead Beerhawk at the time when 
two of the founders were stepping away from the day-to-day business. So it was a great opportunity for me to jump into such a high potential business. Yeah, it sounds sounds very exciting. Um, and a question I got is because you got, you know, they're, they're two brands, but they're part of the, the same overall business. Are they managed, so technically, are they managed separately or are they all on exactly the same stack, but just have different brands? Yeah, so we, Beerhawk is the e-commerce brand, the retailer, and Perfect Draft is really the product line. That would be how I would think about it. Um, We do have a Perfect Draft website as well, but today it's a brand site, at least in the UK, it's a brand site. You can't buy anything on there. It will point you to the Beerhawk site if you want to make a purchase. so a couple of years ago, we were completely separate. Um, you know, we had a beer hawk team, perfect draft team. And just at the beginning of this year, we're all working together now as one team. Ah, uh, cool. Um, and I believe that um, Magento's e-commerce platform, right? Yep. I think because the, the, there's always discussion everywhere about what's the right e-commerce platform. Everyone's got different views on strengths and weaknesses, and there are use cases for each of them. I'd love to hear what... What what are the key commercial criteria that led the business to go to Magento? Yeah, so I actually inherited the platform. Um, so I won't be able to really speak to exactly why it was chosen, but I've been we've been quite happy. We've been very happy with it. Um I think what what's been interesting, I've I've worked on a number of businesses. Um you know, that are in that kind of, they think they're too big for Shopify. They're, they're on Magento. They want to do more customization. Maybe they're, they're working in multiple currencies, multiple countries. There's, there's just more customization. So they're, they've gone with Magento and what I've seen happen in quite a few instances, it's, it's almost like the, I don't know if it's the internal development team or the agency that people are using has almost over customized the site. And it's gotten to the point where the like the business team can know they don't know what to do with it. They it's breaking. They can't they can't manage it. And when I've had that happen before, I've always replatformed. And to be honest, I've always replatformed to Shopify Plus. When I came in to Beerhawk, we were having some issues. I joined right before Black Friday. The site crashed like four days in a row right before Black Friday, and I was just panicking. And I'm thinking, oh my god, here we go again. It's another Magento over-customization. What the hell are we going to do? Um, but we had, I think, two things. One, really strong development team. Like the whole team is you know, ex- deep expertise in, in Magento. And then we also have a really strong partner that we work with called Akuva um, that helps us with kind of the platform scaling. And we you know, made a point of prioritizing platform stability. That was like number one thing on the tech side after that Black Friday, we have to get this under control and we were able to recover it. So um, I think that was a key a key thing. One, site was stable. And then um, it's allowed us to do a lot of the customizations that we've wanted to do. And now that we're expanding, we're working more closely with the perfect draft business and we're expanding to multiple countries in Europe. Um, we want to use 
our platform that we've built with with Beerhawk in those other markets. All the functionality that we've developed, we we want to um, replicate that and, and utilize that. And Magento is set up to do that really well. Yeah, it definitely. If I think it's a really important point you make about the the over customization is normally what causes performance and also backward compatibility issues when you get upgrades to new versions. So it's interesting. It's interesting to hear that you focus on getting the stable stability right. Um, but you're right. Yeah, the the, the multi storefront stuff. That's one of the reasons a lot of businesses choose it. It is clearly a market leader. Um, so you just touched on the point that you know your internal development team's strong and you've got a, a, a really good development partner. Love to hear how do you approach the engineering side internally? Like you know what 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 skills and resources uh, have you got internal versus what you would rely on an external partner for? Yeah. So generally, if if the if those skills that we need are a um, well. If we can expect that it would be a full-time role consistently throughout the year, then we will hire. Um, the the times that we outsource are when, you know, it's something with deep expertise, a specialist, and you only need like 20% of their time, or maybe you only need their time three months out of the year or like for a specific project. Um, so if it's a core skill set that we're going to use every day, we hire and we bring it, we bring it internally. And then I'm assuming then that you have like a, a, a enterprise architect to you in somebody who's got responsibility for the enterprise architecture vision in the business. We do. We have, um, you know, we've, I think what's nice is as you scale, obviously you can afford to bring more of those types of skill sets in house. Um, and then the other benefit we have is we're part of a larger organization, which is ABN Bev, which has, many engineers um, that we can also work with if we need support. That is a distinct advantage, yeah. <laughs> it um, is. <laughs> and, you know, it, it seems like the businesses have grown a huge amount in quite a short space of time. What What are the key challenges you found, like, operationally as an e-commerce business managing growth? Like, key challenges, key issues you've had to overcome? Yeah, so it's definitely the um, COVID period was very challenging because of the demand that uh, businesses like people like us selling beer online saw a lot of demand, especially during lockdown. Um, Some of our biggest challenges were really around that infrastructure, both the, you know, the consumer shopping experience can it support that level of scale that level of demand um but also the systems and like the operational back end um to ensure that we were actually able to process those that level of orders efficiently um so we put a lot of effort especially in 2020 into simplifying our our business model so like simplifying our product lines um you know when the demand was high we needed to channel that into products that were easier for us to sell and fulfill um and then really ensuring that we were working closely with the operations side to make sure you know decisions we were making commercially and the way we were 
running the business, setting things up was not having a negative impact on our ability to fulfill orders or, you know, meet our customers' expectations. Yeah, it's interesting because some of the businesses I work with, the, the bit where they've struggled in their growth the most is on the operational side, like processes in the back office creak and break. Yeah. Too many manual sticking blasters that when you scale, they just destroy it. So interesting to say you focus. Um, I'd love to know because you, you've got Magento. Magento has an order management um, solution that you can you can connect on top of the, the e-commerce. Have you used Magento for the order management or do you have a specialist OMS and, and ERP in, in the business? Because so we have our own um, custom-built WMS. Um, we're not really using an OMS because everything feeds right into the warehouse management system. We just have one warehouse that we're fulfilling from in the UK. Um, so we have not we have not used the uh, Magento OMS. Oh, okay. And is that so? When you say like a customized um, WMS, is that one that you, your engineering team, has built themselves, or are you working with a third party? Then? Yeah, our engineering teams built built it themselves. Um, it was actually a team in France, one of our kind of sister companies. Um, yeah, so I think one of the challenges that we've had is especially around expiration dates. You know, it's a perishable product, and we need to be able to track carefully. The dates on those products and that was something that with our prior wms that we had like an off-the-shelf solution it just didn't even exist and then our kind of partner business had built something themselves and we thought that's great why don't we use that yeah i had a client who, who sells um probiotic um supplements for people um for stomach issues and they have the same issue it was they would have batches and each batch has its own expiry so they might have a thousand in stock but actually a hundred are about to go out of date in the next two days therefore they have to have an intelligence to be able to update that skew so is that the same principle then that that your stock view is is constantly updating based on the expiry or you're pushing stuff into clearance based on it Exactly. I mean, we're having to monitor really closely, like the stock rotation in the warehouse. Um, and then our kind of commercial teams are keeping track of whether we have products that are at risk of going short dated or expiring so that we can make sure that we're prioritizing, you know, any activations around selling those or, or whether we need to discount them. Yeah, that's a fair old undertaking to, to build out your own WMS. So, so the way you said it, another part of the, the overall business had it. Did you was it fit for purpose for you then, or did you did you have to go through a period of adaptation to implement on, on Beerhawk specifically? Yeah, so it it was um mostly fit for purpose because it's a very similar business model. Like there's a company in France called Savar Beer that we had also acquired, very similar to Beerhawk. Um and so they had built their own. And I think the key, the key differences were just in some of the processes of how we were doing fulfillment in the warehouse. So we had to adapt a little bit. But um, from a kind of use case scenario and like our business requirements were exactly the same. Uh, interesting. Um, and yeah, I know one of the one of the um things that Paul, when I was discussing with him in this episode, said that. That um, you know, Beerhawk's very good at testing new features, new approaches. You know, it's not just sitting back and and relying on what's currently working. I'd love to know what are some of the kind of more impactful things that that you've been testing out or, or, or that you've implemented that have helped drive forward the e-commerce. 
Yeah. So what, what comes to mind for me and what I, what I spend a lot of time thinking about is probably two things, even more than like the innovation and what we deliver, it's like how we deliver it. Um, so creating an environment where people can work really effectively. And so two of the things I was very focused on when I joined, um, the first one was really, how do we identify and prioritize what we should be working on? And then the second piece is how do we actually execute and like develop a tech product? So on the identifying what we should work on, um, I spent a lot of time when I first joined the company ensuring that everybody had visibility into consumer feedback. What were people saying about our product? Um, we had a, a daily NPS feed. So when we would send, we would send an um, email to customers like two weeks after they get an order and ask them to, you know, tell us how likely they're to rec- recommend us to a friend and then, and why. And those comments are visible for to everyone in the company. Um, so really trying to be very customer driven and putting ourselves in the shoes of the customer when we're thinking about what we what the opportunities are. And then having very clear kind of commercial goals so that people want that, you know, we use those to, to decide what opportunities we should prioritize essentially. And then on the how do we actually build things? Um, so I think this, this is common in a lot of companies that have scaled quickly or or grown over time. There might not be a lot of processes in place of how, how you build products. And so we put in place, um, you know, I I took a lot of the, I guess, uh, took a lot of the product management process from Google and replicated it. So We've got, you know, each kind of overarching product will have like a strategy, um, you know, features will have like requirements documents. And I think some of the big, well, the most impactful parts of that process were really documenting things and giving a very wide range of people in the organization the chance to comment and give feedback on the proposed you know, the problem we're trying to solve and the solution. And for me, that that was a huge, that led to much better outcomes in the business because we were collaborating cross-functionally in a way that maybe wasn't happening before and really reducing conflicts that, you know, before maybe we wouldn't have realized until the product was almost completely built. Um, so the the change in the process for me was is probably what I'm actually like most proud of because then I feel like you get smart people and they know how to figure it out. They'll, then they're fully empowered. What is Ampliance? In a word, it's freedom. The freedom to build a digital experience as limitless as your vision. Create, preview, schedule and manage all your content in one easy place. Find out more at Ampliance.com. Ampliance, experience freedom. Yeah, it's interesting you you flag up the importance of the product management approach because more and more e-commerce businesses, whether they're pure plays or omni, are investing in a product manager for e-commerce rather than any just an e-commerce manager mm-hmm. or have a product manager alongside a senior e-commerce lead. So it's interesting to see that discipline being being appreciated more and more in this space. 
Yeah, I mean, it's it's definitely a uh, field that I'm very passionate about. I think it's just interesting, um, you know, the mindset, the product mindset, and how you approach problems. I think the key the key difference for me is I always tell my team like you know, clearly define the problem, understand what we're trying to solve and why we're doing it, but then really think about all the different possible solutions. Like, you know, a great product manager is creative in coming up with different solutions and really leverages the whole business to figure out the best way to solve that problem. Um, And so I think that's what product managers do really well is they have that deeper technical understanding, but also a more strategic mindset to really question the status quo and like come up with new ways of doing things that can unlock a ton of value. Yeah, I completely agree that the product managers are having the detailed understanding of the impact of new features or new requests and what that will do to the overall product vision. Yeah, it's 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 a very, very important skill set. Um, question back on Magento, because I always mm-hmm. find this interesting because a lot of people buy into like the 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 more legacy platforms like Magento, Salesforce is because it's got so much more under the hood native core in the platform, like the multi storefront, you know, um, the international capability. You can add in OMS, etc. As uh, Shopify and BigCommerce people buy a SaaS platform and then add third party apps to it. What I'd love to know is because you've got um, lots of additional third parties you've integrated into your stack, you know, Algolia. Search, Nosto, Merch, Rex, FIFO, etc., and lots more. How do you decide when to build on Magento versus when you go for a third-party specialist? Do you have a set criteria? Um, yeah, we've we've tried to define our principles, our technology principles as a team. That's something I worked with our um, kind of engineering directors on at the beginning of the year. And one of our, our principles is we we only build things that truly give us a competitive advantage. And if the solution already exists, we don't rebuild it. So we're, you know, if we identify a, a need for something, we'll evaluate what's already available. Does it, you know, does it meet our needs or do we have to build our own? And, you know, I will always try to use something that already exists if it's a great, you know, if it's a good fit for us. Yeah, I think that's that's a really pragmatic way of looking at it. And I think increasingly more businesses are going down this route of why try and build something that's already done better, because then you've got the cost and complexity of maintaining it. Um, exactly. And like Algolia is a great example. That's, you know, a search I think it's machine. I think there's machine learning behind it. It's like one of the leading search uh, tools in the world, and we're never going to build a better search tool with the number of engineers we have working on that compared to the number of engineers Algolia has working on that globally. So you know, it just makes more sense to to invest yeah. in that solution that they do really really well, and then we can focus on the things that that we need to do really well. Yeah, I, I remember a good few years back having a conversation with a, a business that was considering building out its own e-commerce platform and not using third parties. And we looked at search and merchant error and said, right, here's the about 260 use cases. <laughs> How long will it take the engineering team to build it? And then when they looked at what they could deliver for launch, it was like, okay, so that's like 20 use cases. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> it's not going to be fit for purpose. <laughs> um. 
I've got a question around subscriptions. I know you'd flagged us that subscriptions isn't a, a massive part of the business at the moment, but you've had a, you've done a proof of concept on it. I'd love to know um, what what is the subscription service, and do you see that you know being a a big future part of the the overall growth? Because there's there's a lot of talk at the moment in the market about subscriptions being really important at keeping customers in to online shopping and recurring revenue at a time when e-commerce is is struggling a little bit versus the last few years. So where do you see that as part of the overall mix? Yeah, so it's an it's an interesting one, and it is something I have spent some time thinking about. So um, yeah, as a business model, a lot of D two C companies use a subscription. Uh, revenue model to be able to um, potentially pay more to acquire a customer up front and then have a locked in repeat customer uh, you know behavior and higher customer lifetime value to justify that cost of customer acquisition. Um, we have a pretty unique business model in that because people are buying the machine, that kind of locks them in. Um, or, you know, they're making that investment. There's a certain hurdle to say, you know, you don't just buy that if you're not planning to come back and get more kegs. So we don't have to necessarily lock them in in a subscription to know that they're going to rec- be a recurring purchaser of kegs. Um, so from an economic standpoint, we don't need to do subscription to make the business model work. The other piece of subscription is like, is it more convenient? Does it help people to, you know, get their whatever they're consuming on the right frequency. Um, so one thing that is kind of new to our business is we recently launched this new beer machine called Perfect Draft Pro, which is actually an IoT-connected machine. And so the dream for us in the future is actually through the consumption data in the machine that should you know trigger reminders to the customer on their app about when they need to reorder um, and make that as frictionless as possible and we think that that will that will better match the customer's consumption habits than just doing a, a subscription um, so we're not super bullish on subscription right now. You know, we, if anything, I hear that a lot of consumers don't like being locked into something that's so rigid. Yeah, I think it's a good point. There's, there's some interesting um, research came out recently about uh, people abandoning subscriptions, but primarily it's not because they don't want to subscribe. It's because of lock-in and the, the awkward customer experience of trying to change it or pause it. So mm-hmm. where they have full control and flexibility and can go on holiday or cancel or whatever, change frequency, then the the adoption rates stay pretty high. But yeah, when it's when it's a pretty clunky system, then people get fed up and cancel. And often, I mean, I've had this I've, on a software product that I couldn't cancel because it was a nightmare. I just can't through my bank, went through the process of canceling and blocking. Oh, the wow. <laughs> which then isn't good because <laughs> having to go through that makes you even more annoyed as a consumer. Yeah, you're not going to probably ever sign up for that again. <laughs> no, no, it's not. It's not an imperative. That's interesting here. And do you do you ever um, are you going down the route at all of on on the core um, like beer products like the cans going down the route of often subscription on that? Is that is that currently enabled or in the pipeline? So 
our most successful subscription product on the cans is um, a business we acquired a few years ago called Beer Bods. It's um, a weekly tasting. So there's a weekly live tasting of one beer. So you'll receive, um, you know, single beers that you get to try. And really the subscription is about being part of a community to sample and try new beers and, you know, hear from the founder about the product and like be part of that. It's more an experience than a product. Um, so that's something that we found to be a really interesting use and like effective use of subscription. I really like that idea as well, because that, that ties into some of the psychology principles of, you know, if you get a commitment consistent in yours, you get the, a personal connection and the liking piece with other humans and you've got more buy-in to that process rather than just receiving a product. Yeah, that's a nice idea. Um, question I've got around the perfect draft stuff actually because you've got you've got the, the dispense of the machine and you've got the kegs and the resupply um, you know of the kegs how does it work for people when they've emptied a keg um do you provide an end-to-end service is it is it all because you know, environmental considerations are really important to people so what, what does that look like for the customer yeah so we are really the only um you know beverage company in the UK that's doing fully returnable. Uh, containers with our, we have steel kegs. And basically we have different ways that the consumer can return the keg when they're done using it. And then we'll sanitize it and refill it and and use it again. Um, So, you know, in, I would say in the interest of always improving the customer experience, we're always trying to look for ways to make keg returns more seamless for our customer. So we have a few different ways to do that today. so our courier is Yodel. You can schedule a collection where we'll actually go and pick up from your house. Um, you can drop off at a Collect Plus store, which is also through Yodel. Or we have a network of affiliate stores around the UK, which are really kind of small convenience stores where you can bring your kegs and they'll give you a credit. So every keg is worth five pounds credit, um, either through our Beerhawk site or through these affiliate stores. And if you return to an affiliate store, though, they also sell kegs. So you can just use your credit to pick up a keg while you're there. Oh, so a good omni-channel um, service do it in the way you want to. Excellent. Um, and so I guess if, if so, if, so even if somebody if, if somebody decides they don't want any more kegs, do they still get the credit back or is the credit only when you purchase a new one then? Yeah, so you can always... As long as you return the kegs, you get the five pounds back for each keg. Okay, cool. That sounds like a, a nice proposition, easy to understand for the consumer as well. Um, my, my final question, it's always the open-ended one for, for every every um, business owner, is what's on the roadmap? Where I'd love to know from a, from a technical point of view, feature point of view, like you know, what, what's coming up? Have you got anything exciting in the pipeline or, or big ambitions for next year? <laughs> Yeah. So let's see. I think probably the the thing that's been on my mind quite a bit is we've recently been working more closely with Yodel and we're looking to test a new return process, which we call pickup drop-off. So it's basically a swap, which means you can leave your, the customer will be able to leave their empty kegs on you know their front step or or whatever, and when you when the yodel driver drops off their new order of kegs, they'll just pick up the empties and it'll be one one uh, 
one delivery slash pickup, um, which should be more convenient for the customer. Um, cause you, you know, they know that the kegs are coming and that they can return their empties at the same time. And, you know, it's, it's definitely much better for the environment because we're not having the truck come multiple times to the same household. So, um, yeah, that's something we're really excited about. And it's, it's both a kind of process innovation, but also, you know, we're working with Yodel on, you know, literally working with using their API to make sure we're booking the collections through, you know, through our checkout that'll feed into, to their systems. And we'll be the first, um, really the first UK retailer to do that and pilot that with them. That's good. Uh, it, it's it's almost like ESP because I was going to ask you, like, you, is there any consideration of doing the, the pick and drop it? So fantastic. And, and when do you reckon you're going to be able to pilot that then? Is that close to being ready? Or Yeah. So we're, we are literally just having the initial conversations right now with Yodel and like putting the tech teams together to figure out, okay, what do we need to do to make this work? Um, so, I mean, I'm hoping it'll be in the next you know, a couple months, you know, hopefully this year for sure, at least we'll start piloting it with some of our, some of our, um, you know, super users. We always like to leverage our super users to test new things. Oh, cool. Well, good luck with that. Cause yeah, there's always a, a challenge planning out the, the integration piece. So I hope it goes well. Sounds like, it sounds like from a customer experience point of view, it's absolutely no brainer to do. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you. Yeah, and, and Alex, thanks ever so much. Really enjoyed talking to you. Loved learning more about the business strategy, tech, and growth plans. Um, I hope it continues to do as well as it has been over the uh, the last year or so. Um, and thanks for joining us. And also, thanks, everyone, for listening. I hope you enjoyed it as well. Um, one last thing to ask, Alex, if anybody wants to to, to know a bit more, um, yeah, could they? Who can they reach out if they want to know more about? Yeah, you can find me. Uh, you can find me on LinkedIn. <laughs> you can look up Alex Nelson, Perfect Draft, or Beer Hawk. I'll be. I'm on there. I'll I'll respond to any messages. Excellent. Thanks. And for those listening, keep an ear out for the next episode due to to drop out. They drop every Tuesday, uh, and do subscribe or give us a like in on YouTube, Apple, or Spotify. Thanks very much, everyone. For more information on this topic, head over to replatform.fm for our audio podcasts. To discuss a project, or if you'd like to chat about any of the topics covered in this episode in more detail, please reach out to myself, James Gerd, or my co-host, Paul Rogers, via LinkedIn and Twitter. Thanks again for listening, and keep your ears peeled for the next episode.